Shannon Walton. Thank you so much for sharing your powerful words and uh, heartfelt. And again, uh, as a people, you know, black, brown, and indigenous communities, we know what cages are. The history in this country of our peoples, you know, started out in cages and chains. Uh, we can't have that in 2021. So thank you so much for sharing uh, these words with us. It's going to encourage a lot of people, and uh, we're going to continue this conversation. Thank you so much, thank you. President. Of course, appreciate you. Some days you may wake up sad. Some days you may wake up frustrated. Some days you may wake up tired. Some days you may wonder if it's worth it. Some days you will question your own growth. Some, some days you may think how immense the world is to be caged in this country, to be subjugated to all this abuse. Some days you just want to breathe. And baby, I am here to remind you to sit in those moments, to sit in that whirlpool, but just know there are people like me picking up the load when you can't. There are people like me pushing so the weight of this country does not crush you. And there are people like you who will fight when I can't and we will take turns pushing against these walls. I got your back and you got mine. And in the scheme of things, does anything else matter? Even if our fight is unfruitful, we will depart with our dignity intact. We'll depart knowing that this country is losing a prized possession. This country is losing the gift of our resilience. We will watch them as they tear into each other's skins and we will thank the heavens we never turn into peace like them. Muchas gracias. KBOO Portland. If you're a lover of all kinds of music and how it makes you feel, please tune into Passing Sound every fourth Sunday at 8 p.m. on KBOO Community Radio, 90.7 FM or KBOO.FM, where we analyze elements in music to create an eclectic playlist for the listener, for the listener to, enjoy. to enjoy. Do you miss going to the theater looking for some drama? Then tune in for The Strange Case of Nick M., an all-new radio play by Imago Theater on Monday, May 3rd at 10 p.m. Listeners will be taken on Imago's trippy audio journey into a fragmentary world, narrated by a cocky podcaster who has unearthed a box of long-forgotten reel-to-reel tapes. So tune in on Monday, May 3rd at 10 p.m. and get ready for a very special premiere of Imago's The Strange Case of Nick M. right here on your community radio station, KBOO Portland. Welcome to Book Waves. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Salman Rushdie, whose latest novel is Keyshot. That's Q-U-I-C-H-O-T-T-E. Earlier novels are 15 previous novels, Midnight's Children, Golden House, Shalimar the Clown, several others. There are four works of nonfiction, including the memoir Joseph Anton. This particular book takes off a little bit on Cervantes' Don Quixote, and I understand that you began thinking about this when you were listening to an opera, is that correct? Well, it came out of a couple of things. Yeah, one was that I, I listened to the, the 19th century French opera by Jules Massenet, which is called Don Quixote in the French pronunciation. And that made me start thinking about Cervantes and also, there was a, an anniversary, there was a couple, you know, about four years ago, which was about when I listened to this opera. It was the 400th anniversary of Cervantes. 
so I was asked to write something about him and and that meant that I picked up the book the, the great book which I hadn't done in I don't know since I was at college and it got me thinking because I had been thinking about a road novel anyway it sort of reminded me of the granddaddy of all road novels and that became a starting place did the road novel begin because you were thinking about what was happening in America today yeah, also that I felt that in the previous two novels, I had essentially almost entirely stayed inside New York City, and that I wanted to get out of the city. I wanted to go go across America. And in fact, I at one point thought that it might not be a novel, that it might be an actual journey that I would take with my son and see what happened to us. But in the end, I just reverted to my my kind of A game and thought I'll make it up instead. Did you do any kind of travel? Quite a lot of these are places that over over the course of the last 20 years I have visited to some extent. There are one or two places in the book which are sort of fictional towns which are quite like real places. There's not a town in New Jersey called Beringer where people turn into mastodons. There's not a town in Kansas called Beautiful but there are places like that very like that. So so I felt that over the last couple of decades, I had seen enough of America to make it possible for me to, to do this journey as an act of imagination rather than as a kind of literal journey. We'll get to both Beautiful and um, Beringer in, in a little bit, but when you finally decided you were going to do this, there are a couple of hints, obviously the name, toward Don Quixote, but it's also more general kind of satire on uh, culture and politics as the original was. When you were looking at writing the road novel, what made you decide to actually tell two stories, the story of Keyshot and then the story of the writer writing Keyshot? Yeah, well, that happened, really took me by surprise in a way because I was not planning to do it. I mean, I, I had thought that, um, that the, the book I would write would be about two sorts of journey. One is the physical journey across America, which would have a look at what's going on in the country. And the other would be a kind of inner journey, if you like, that Quichotte takes in order to, as he says, make himself worthy of the hand of this famous woman that he's decided he's in love with and who he doesn't know. So he, has, he sets himself a series of tests in a kind of almost allegorical way. So there are those those two journeys, and I that the inner journey and the outer journey, which I and I thought that was the book, and and then I found myself writing this other material about the ostensible author of the Keyshot storyline. Truthfully, I've always slightly disapproved of that kind of fiction, the kind of books in which a writer writes about I, a writer writes about a writes about a writer writing a book, and I've always thought, you know don't do that sort of thing. And then I found myself doing it. And I was very uncertain about whether it should stay in the book. And I, I, I just thought, I'm going to see what there is here. And I reserved with myself the right to take it out. But then I found that the story of the ostensible author who calls himself brother uses the pseudonym of Sam Duchamp and is a kind of second-rate spy novelist who's trying something different. Trying something different, he, he realizes rather quickly that he's in fact telling his own story and he's, he's writing something which is probably more intimately his own story than anything he's done. And his own life problems are worked out through his, the story of Quichotte. 
He has a son that he's estranged from, that he wants to mend fences with. He has a sister that he believes he's done her wrong in the past, and he wants to see if reconciliation and forgiveness are possible. In the Kishat storyline, there are variations on both those themes, and those are very much like, in a way, the kind of emotional heart of the book, I think. And they don't all end the same way. Some of them end better than others. But then I thought, actually, I quite like the way these storylines are illuminating one another. And I think, you know, I'll keep them. I'll keep them both. For you, Salman Rushdie, is there a parallel, not necessarily in this book, but in other books where you, on some level, are working things out in the same way with maybe different endings as characters yeah, in yeah, your novels? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think I think quite often, and even in this book, you know, because there are things in this book in which are very personal to me. One is the fact that the theme of opioid addiction that's that's in the book. I mean, Kishat starts off as a as a pharmaceutical salesman and is working for a person who we discover is a a sort of opioid crook, a pharmaceutical entrepreneur who is who is getting these very powerful drugs into the hands of people who who don't need them. Anyway, the reason for my interest in that was that my youngest sister became dependent on these things, on, you know, Vicodin, Percocet, Oxycontin, and 12 years ago had a heart attack and died. And I, at that time, had no idea how seriously dependent she had become. And it shocked me deeply. And so it became personal to me. And I thought, I have to, I have to find out about this stuff. And, and uh, I've spent, you know, on and off in the last decade, I've been diving into this. I mean, I've been looking at, you know, the Sackler family and the Johnson & Johnson thing. And, and actually, even the, the true life story on which my character in the book, Dr. Smile, is based, I've been following that story for a while. I mean, now suddenly it's in the news and people are going to jail and having to pay large fines. But for a very long time, it was like an invisible epidemic. And I, you know, became very concerned about it for this very personal reason. What's the true life story of Dr. Smile? Who's well, the person? Oh, well, there's the story about an, an Indian-American pharmaceutical entrepreneur. I mean, in the novel, my character, Dr. Smile, is based in the Atlanta area, but in, in the, the real person was elsewhere. He was sort of in the Chicago area. You know, he made a lot of money, he did very well, he had a good business, and he patented a variation of fentanyl, a very powerful opioid. But because he was, to put it bluntly, um, a little crooked, he started bribing doctors to prescribe this medication, as they say, off-license, which means for things it's not intended to be prescribed for, and therefore became a billionaire and contributed a great deal to the opioid epidemic. And then just recently, he was arrested and tried, and I think he's in jail now. So you'd been investigating that, and suddenly those, that story came up in the actual headlines. Yes, I mean, what's so weird is that literally in the month of this book coming out, suddenly it's a huge news story all over the headlines. And, you know, for the last several years that I've been thinking about it, I mean, people have talked about it a little bit, but it's been very much kind of under the radar, this epidemic. And the thing that I came to feel about it, you know, yes, there's all this stuff about crooked crooked doctors and manufacturers, but I came to feel that in some way this is a manifestation of the growing isolation in which many of us live. 
where it's most prevalent is in small towns in the middle of the country. And you feel that somehow we've constructed a society in which apparently we have a million ways to communicate with each other now, but actually we're all becoming more isolated from each other and lonelier. And this kind of thing, drug addiction, it starts off as a way of, as a form of solace, and then it, then it becomes addiction. So all of that was very interesting to me. And, and as I say, I've been thinking about this for, for a decade, and it's only now that I felt able to write about it. Salman Rushdie, there are several different areas. You tackle several different areas in this book. Uh, one of the key areas, particularly early on in the book, as I was reading it, I kept going, he's written a book about the rise of fascism. And then, of course, it becomes plainer in the town of Berenger, which is based on uh, Ionesco's Rhinoceros. Yes. Well, Ionesco's Rhinoceros was about the rise of fascism. Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. And Berenger... The, the main character was the last one who did not become yes. a rhinoceros, and right. in this case, you made a mastodons. Yes, I just thought pink elephants, you know, would be funny. At what point did you s- decide you would go on this little side trip about Ionesco? Well, really, for the reason that you say, because I was began to feel that we're sort of there again, you know. Um, I mean, he wrote that in the aftermath of of the, of the mid-century, you know, rise of fascism. You know, Hitler and all that. What I thought is that what he's saying to us is that a moment can come in which the people who are our next door neighbors can overnight become monsters. They can become so alien from us that we can't talk to them anymore and they can't talk to us and they're frightening. And I thought, well, that may be somewhere quite close to where we live right now. And so I, I actually inserted this chapter because it's like a self-contained little moment in the book where Quichotte and his half-imaginary teenage son, Sancho, take a detour off the road in order to spend the night somewhere before they drive into New York City and suddenly find themselves in this, in this surrealist milieu. And I put it in because I just thought, you know, it feels, feels right to me to put it in because I feel that it's as accurate now as it was when Ionesco wrote his play. For me, it was interesting because last spring, uh, ACT in San Francisco did a major production of uh, Rhinoceros. Oh, did they? Yeah, and I interviewed the uh, director, Frank Galati, from Chicago, and we talked specifically about the fact that uh, Berenger or Ionesco was just watching his girlfriend all of these intelligent people suddenly became someone else. Yes. They became the monsters. Exactly. So when I hit this, I'm going, oh, there it is. Well, you see, when I was at Cambridge, age 19, I was cast in a production of Rhinoceros. And I wasn't the lead. I wasn't Berenger. I was one of the other townspeople. But I was one of the people who had to turn into rhinoceroses. And you had to keep running on and off stage. And every time you're off stage, somebody sticks a bit more rhinoceros on you and then you come back on stage. And, and I remember at that age, that tender age, being puzzled. What's this about? You know, and I remember asking the director, you know, what's this about? It seems like nonsense. And then he gently and kindly explained to me that it was about Nazism. And I thought, oh, that's clever. And it made me think about how you can use surrealism, and as it was then called absurdism, to say something deeply real about the real world. And I thought I'd like that idea. And it was very, very a kind of shaping moment for the way in which I 
afterwards would think about writing. And and that then played a role in all of your books yes. that have a fantastic element. Yes, yes. It was, it was a kind of important moment for me as a young person thinking about wanting to be a writer. There are other elements involving racism, in particular um, what happens when Keyshot and his son, quote-unquote uh, Sancho, wind up at various places and get accosted and in one particular instance almost shot. Yeah, one instance they do and one instance the writer does. Uh, did, did, is that based on any event that you saw? Um, not that I saw, but that I knew about. And there, that, this brings us back to the imaginary town of Beautiful in Kansas. There's a real town in Kansas whose name I always mispronounce. It's, I think it's pronounced Olefa, O-L-A-T-H-E. And at a few years ago there, there was, you know, one of, the, one of the random shootings that happens every day in America. Some crazy guy went into a bar, and there were two Indian Americans, I think software engineers, at the bar, and he shot them. And one of them died, and one of them survived. And I remember reading this and thinking how absolutely meaningless this was. You know, he just shot them because they were there. Nobody said anything to anyone. There was no altercation. And so a version of that scene crops up in the novel. But because I didn't want to be limited, if you know what I mean, by the news story, I didn't want to put it in the real town, so I changed the name of the town because I discovered that the name of the town is actually a Native American word, which means beautiful. So I thought, okay, then I'll call the town beautiful, and it'll be very close to the real town, but it won't actually be the real town. So I'm not limited by the news story. You're listening to an interview with Salman Rushdie, whose latest book is Key Shot, a novel. I'm Richard on Bookwaves. In Don Quixote, of course, there's also Sancho Panza, who's a real person. What made you decide that this Sancho would be an imaginary person who becomes sort of real? Well, because I saw my Quixote as a lonely man, you know, somebody who'd never been married and always wanted a child. And so I thought his need to be a father would be a good way for the child to come into being, just out of his, out of his desperate need. He can will the child into being. And I, thought, I felt that was what my character wanted to do. You know, I, I mean, I never wanted really to exactly mirror Don Quixote and Sancho Panza. You know, and, and in many ways, they grow quite unlike each other. As you say, Sancho Panza is, is a real person. He's an adult. He's very earthy. He's very, he's very kind of physical. And my character, is, my Sancho, is a figment of, of Quixote's imagination who gradually acquires a kind of reality during the course of the story. So they're very unlike each other. And Quixote himself differs from Don Quixote in that Don Quixote is, is characterized by being melancholy. You know, he's called the Knight of the Dolorous Countenance. He has a long, sad face. Whereas my character, from the first moment that I started writing about him, wanted to be very cheerful. You know, he's called, his real name is he's called Mr. Smile, and he has a charming smile, and he has good manners of the old school, and, and beautiful handwriting, and he is absurdly optimistic and hopeful. So that even as he goes through America at what may not be the most hopeful moment in America's history, he, re he retains a kind of sweetness and optimism about it. And then in his own quest for this talk show hostess that he's got obsessed by, which he calls falling in love with, he knows that he's 
absurdly out of her league. But he tells himself that it'll be fine, that if he can make himself worthy of her, love will find a way. And, and I wanted, to me, that those two things, the hopefulness of Kishat and the determination of his imaginary son to be a real person, that those were the driving forces of the characters. And so, I mean, Sancho, my Sancho, actually has a closer relationship to Pinocchio than to Sancho Panza. And there's Germany Cricket in the book, so... Yes, there's a, the, <laughs> or there's Germany Cricket's Italian original, you know, <laughs> because in, not in the Disney movie, but in the original novel Pinocchio by Carlo Collodi, there is a talking cricket, and he's called Grillo Parlante, which means talking cricket, and he speaks Italian. So I thought, I'm going to have the original cricket, not the Disney version. And, and of course, the cricket, as the cricket does in all those other examples represents conscience, something in which Kishat is very interested because he's a person for whom morality is very important. But Sancho, his teenage, his mutinous teenage child, is not really that interested in conscience. In fact, he keeps saying, he says to the cricket that conscience doesn't really get you very far in the world as it is, you know. Lies, crookedness, treachery, all that seems to work. Conscience doesn't seem to. So his relationship with the cricket is less close, if you like, than Pinocchio's. Uh, one other element that where it differs is that Keyshot is not really delusional. He knows every step of the way what he is doing. He knows he's obsessed. He knows that she probably, even though he would love to think her falling in love with him, he knows damn well it probably won't happen. And he knows that he's really smile Yes, he does. He's not, he's, not, he's not crazy crazy. He's just a little bit cracked. Once you created Sancho as his son, was that the point where you began to see that connection between the writer writing the book? Yes, it was in a way. Uh, because, you know, for me, I really have always been very interested in love relationships which are not romantic love relationships. That's to say... Uh, you know, in this novel, romantic love is represented by this obsession of Kishat for Miss Salma R, the, the talk show host he's obsessed by. But these other love relationships, fathers and sons, brothers and sisters, I think in many ways are as central in our lives and much less talked about. So I wanted that to be at the heart of the book. And in my own case, personally, you know, I've had, as of, both as a father and as a son, I've had very different experiences. Like, my relationship with my father was bad for much of our lives. I mean, it was good when I was a little boy, and it was good again right at the end of his life. But for a lot of my adult life and a lot of his life, you know, we were very much at odds with one another and alienated from one another. And I wanted very much to be a different kind of father and to have a different kind of relationship with my children. And, and I do have, you know, so I have... I have the experience of both a bad father-son relationship in which I was the son and a much better father-son relationship, or two of them, in which I'm the father. So, so that's always been something I, I've thought about a lot. So the two variations in the novel, the two fathers and sons, you know, come out of very much my own personal interest in being a good father in what it was like to be a son. Salman Rushdie, the character of Salma R., whose mother and grandmother were also Bollywood actresses, I noticed something about 
reference back to Bombay from her, from the Smile family, and it reminded me a lot of you talking about what Bombay was like before you went off to uh, England. Yes. I've obviously fictionally visited it before in Midnight's Children, in the Moor's Last Sigh, even in, um, in the last two books, in The Golden House and in Two Years, Eight Months, and 28 Nights. There are moments back there. This time I've, I've actually disguised it much less than in the past. I've actually used the real names of the neighborhood where I lived, the real names of the houses there. And, and in a way, this is a real portrait of that vanishing world because the city is not like that anymore. It's very different. And so it's that Bombay is nostalgic even to people who still live in what is now Mumbai. You know, Kishat and his author are both people of Indian origin living in America. They're both people with a kind of nostalgic fondness for those early days of their lives. And I guess I have that too. But I'm also well aware that that really is the past. And even if you were to go to that city, it wouldn't feel like that now. Well, I think that's true <laughs> these days of any place, including San Francisco, where you just look around and the skyline is suddenly completely different, or London for that matter. Yes, exactly. Both those cities are changing at quite spectacular speed. Some other elements in uh, Keyshot, one of which is alternate universes and a character named Evil Scent. <laughs> which is kind of obvious, but he's not necessarily evil either. What made you bring in that, or was it just a push underneath it to kind of acknowledge old-time science fiction? There is that science fiction strand of the novel, and, and, and evil scent is the character at the center of that. But it's also that I wanted to say that a part of the thing that is revolutionizing reality at the moment is this extraordinary speed of technological transformation. Things that people be believed five minutes ago were completely fictitious, complete the stuff of fantasy and science fiction, are now things that get mass-produced and you can buy them for $100. That speed of change, and uh, I wanted to have a strand of the novel which explored that. So the Evil Sense character is a scientist entrepreneur who, who believes that he has, or that his company is finding the technology which can link our Earth to other dimensions, you know, to parallel Earths, and that it may be possible to travel between them. And he tells anybody who will listen that our Earth is in such bad trouble that it's going to come to an end sooner rather than later. And so he recommends that everybody invest in his, in his company because he, can, he offers them the possibility of escape and a new beginning. I just thought I wanted that theme in the book, you know, that, that the world is changing so fast that it may be that the world that we are familiar with, that we think we know, is actually in a way ending and some other thing is coming into being. Salman Rushdie, changing the, the subject, I went to IMDb and it said that there's a TV series being developed for Midnight's Children? That was true. Sadly, I think it's, it's hit a rock. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't know if I asked you about what it was like working on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, did you write your own copy on that? There is no script. Oh, really? It's complete. It's not. When I say it's completely improvised, it means there is no written script. It's what would be called, I suppose, guided improv. That they'll, you know, they'll sit you down at the table in a restaurant, uh, as I did with Larry, and they will say, "Look, in this scene, here's what's supposed to happen, roughly speaking." 
we have to get from here to here. But how you do it is up to you. Did they contact you and yes. say, hey, we want you on the show? Yes. I mean, I had met Larry David just a couple of times. I didn't, I didn't know him at all well. And he got in touch through my agents, and then we exchanged phone numbers, and I spoke to him on the phone. He told me, he said, we're doing this, and do you want to be in it? And later, he admitted to me that they had no plan B. <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember watching the show and going, oh, wait a second, I know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, they said, you know, if you had said no, we wouldn't have known what to do. Salman Rushdie, all right, now you've got this. You have mentioned in the past that when I ask you what you're doing next, you say, I haven't thought about it or anything, but it's clear that by the time a book comes out and is on the shelves, you're hard at work on the next one. Is it that has, correct? It has been true for a long time now, and it's not this time. I realized that I've been publishing a book every other year for about a dozen years now, and that's alarmingly prolific for me because I'm somebody who has often taken five years, four years to write a book. This sort of novel every two years thing is, it's really different for me. I think that whatever that hot streak was, I have a terrible feeling it might just have run out because at this moment, I, I'm not writing anything and I'm not I'm not, I really don't have a clear idea of what to write next. And so it's not possible that there can be, not, you know, for there to be a book two years from now, I'd have to be welling, well underway with it now. And I'm not. I think I have to take a break. One final question regarding politics. What we're seeing now is pushback against authoritarian regimes, whether they be proto-authoritarian like Trump or yeah. Johnson or actual authoritarian like in Turkey. No, I believe in that pushback, and I think you know that's one of the reasons why I, too, like Kishat, am at bottom an optimist. You know, and, and what I did with the character of Keyshot was to take my often unjustified optimism that simply won't go away and exaggerate it, make it, make it crazy optimism. And so he, in a way, is an exaggeration of me. And, it, and you know, you were asking about Larry David. I mean, Larry David said to me about the character that he plays, that it's an enormous exaggeration of himself, that he is a bit like that, but the character is a zillion times more like that. Um, and I think Keyshot is like that in the relationship to me. I think he's me enormously magnified. You've been listening to an interview with Salman Rushdie, whose latest novel is Keyshot, Amrit Walensky on Bookwaves. An extended version of this interview can be found as a Radio Walensky podcast in the Area 941 section of the kpfa.org website. For comments about this program, Write bookwaves at hotmail.com, and for more information, go to bookwaves.com. Bookwaves is produced by Richard Walensky in the studios of KPFA Pacifica Radio in Berkeley, California. are listening to KBOO 90.7 FM in Portland. Andy Wall, oh, looks a scream. Have him on my wall. Oh, oh, oh. Andy Wall, oh, silver scream. Can't tell the 
Jesus, the Lord of all.